0: with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: It's the Friday edition, which means we have the Friday panel coming up at the bottom of the hour. But first, here is this morning's front burner from CBC News.
2: Hi, I'm Angela Starrett. It's been a while since we've done an episode directly about COVID-19 on the show. But there's something interesting going on in Ontario, where since the beginning of September, the seven-day average of new cases had been on the steady decline, which was good news. But then that decline stalled. And now it's reversed. Cases are climbing again.
1: A combination of cooler weather and looser restrictions has seen a rebound of COVID-19 cases, perhaps enough to require a course correction.
2: Ontario is hitting the pause button on the next step of its reopening plan, it comes after a spike in COVID-19 cases
1: out of an abundance of caution. We are pausing the next step of the plan to reopen Ontario and manage COVID.
2: Today, why the change? And does this signal a new, more stubborn phase of the pandemic? Dr. Suman Chakrabarty is an infectious disease specialist in Mississauga, Ontario, which was hit exceptionally hard by this virus in earlier waves. Hi, Dr. Chakrabarty. Afternoon. How are you? I'm well, thanks. And thank you so much for, for joining us. I was hoping we could start by talking about sort of the, the top line COVID numbers in Ontario, you know, before we get into what they mean. So first off, what have you been seeing Ontario's case numbers do over the last few months? Yeah,
3: this has been a very interesting trend uh, entering uh, September. We know that around this time, a lot of increased contact happens, whether it's at school, at home with friends, and a lot of this is indoor. So we expected the cases to rise quite a bit, like we saw in other parts of the world. But what we saw in Ontario was there was certainly a, a, a rise, but it was more of a wavelet, if you will, something that was blunted. And uh, this was a trend that we initially didn't believe, but it really has continued this way until recently recently. So I think that what we were seeing was a blunted wave compared Mm. to what we saw. And I think this is a a positive relief.
2: Mm. And this past September looked very different from, from last September. Why do you think that was?
3: Yeah, it certainly did. And I think that uh, there probably are multiple reasons for this, but I think it's really important for us to consider that vaccine mediated immunity and also immunity from having just been exposed to COVID previously, that in uh, kind of accumulation, when you look at it, probably did have a significant effect for making this wave be much more blunted than it otherwise could have been.
2: Hmm. What are the, the rates of vaccination in Ontario right now?
3: So we're doing pretty well. If we look at the eligible individuals, so that essentially would be 12 and up. Yeah. We're at around 85% now fully vaccinated. Wow. And that's huge. Now, it might not be the 90% that we have been talking about for Delta in order to reach a steady state. But this is still remarkable compared to any other vaccination campaign uh, for this type of illness that we've had in Canada.
2: And where in Ontario are the case numbers going up now, today?
3: Yeah, that's another really interesting thing is that uh, in the past, it's been mainly GTA. If we, we look at the past, you know, year and a half, but right now what we're seeing is that while there is some case growth here, we're seeing a lot of case growth that's happening outside of the greater Toronto area. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, Lambton County, where I was originally from, from Sarnia, um, Sudbury, we're seeing Haldimand, all these places that historically weren't hit as hard and as long by COVID, and this is where we are seeing it, and that's uh, certainly a different pattern than what we've been seeing for the past year and a
2: half. Do you know why that is? Like, what's to account for those for those discrepancies, and why the numbers are, are higher in those rural areas? I ha- I think a lot of us have
3: theories, and I think part of this has to do with again uh, the accrual of immunity. So, with the Delta, Delta is the great equalizer. It is extremely contagious, uh, transmissible. Sorry, contain, uh, compared to the uh, previous uh, uh, variants of COVID, I think part of that it has a really, really good. Ability to get into populations where there's susceptibility. And what we see is in areas, for example, like Peel, even though there is a a chunk of people that haven't been vaccinated, because Peel was hit so hard uh, in the first three waves of COVID, and I guess the, the fourth wave as well.
4: Toronto and Peel will be moved into lockdown
5: gyms casinos and salons are
2: closed. Peel residents are asked to restrict contact to members of their own households even in their yards.
1: We are very much on a knife's edge in the region of Peel uh, once our hospital capacity starts getting challenged uh, that's uh, that's a sign that we really need to take these measures seriously.
3: You're seeing people that have already been exposed to to COVID, and even though it's not necessarily the same type of immunity as the vaccination is, it still is immunity nonetheless. The GTA, especially Peel, um, has a massive manufacturing sector. So you have a lot of factories where people are working in high-density areas, and and then people go home to what, uh, on average, is a multi-generational family. So you can see this occupational to household transmission chain can continue, even when the cases are overall low in the province, this uh, conveyor belt can continue, and that leads to a lot of post-exposure immunity. Outside of these areas, you know, a lot of places have been relatively untouched by COVID. So uh, COVID did get there. Maybe there was a bit of a, a spike that was brief, for example, in Thunder Bay, but it wasn't the same sort of um, you know full-level community exposure. So you have a lot of pockets that if there are people who haven't gotten vaccinated, if you haven't been vaccinated and you haven't been exposed, you know, you're susceptible to COVID. And again, Delta is very, very good at finding out these pockets and Delta is burning through those.
2: Mm. And I mean, given what you've just said there, you know, you're going to have people listening who say, well, if exposure gives me immunity already and I have a low risk of hospitalization because I'm younger or I'm more healthy, then why bother being vaccinated? I mean, what would you say to those people?
3: Yeah, and this is a a thought that I get a lot in my clinic, and there's a number of things. First of all, I want to make it clear that immunity from uh being exposed to covid having covid exists we can't I- ignore that this is an infectious disease phenomenon but there's a lot of things that we have to be careful of so first of all if you're if you get covid you certainly have the risk of getting quite sick from it and transmitting it to others so that's the first thing uh, and the second thing is that the immunity that comes from uh being exposed it can be variable uh, and we don't uh, it's not completely um characterized yet it might not last for as long as being uh vaccinated or having a hybrid of being uh Exposed to COVID and being uh, vaccinated with a single dose or even two. So I think that uh, it's just a bit of a gamble to take to do that. If you haven't been vaccinated yet, I still urge you to do so. It, it uh, is the best defense. And again, Delta does seek out people who are
2: susceptible. I mean, going back to those uh, Ontario case numbers going up, I imagine that makes a lot of people nervous because we know that with this virus, growth can be exponential. And 400 cases one day can mean 800 soon after. Do you have a a sense of that happening here?
3: So, my. My overall sense is no, but as I have always said, number one, let's time stamp this conversation because things could change. And number two, I always want to have a level of humility when it comes to COVID because it can do things uh, and it can really uh, sometimes outperform our expectations, whether that is good or bad. My sense is with 85% vaccination on the ground, the networks of people who are still susceptible, they're spread out throughout the province. And the GTA ha- is pretty, pretty um, uh, immune when you look at the totality of things. So, you know, seeing areas, I do expect certain areas to have spikes in cases, but then for it to come down, I don't expect to see that same type of second and third wave that were actually on top of each other back earlier this year.
2: I want to dig a little bit deeper into what these numbers actually mean. Uh, we've been talking about case counts here, but, but let's go into those numbers a bit deeper. What has been happening in Ontario's ICUs?
3: This is actually a, a positive note, is that what we saw is that over the course of the last several months, our hospitals have continued to decompress. And our ICUs, which were very strained, especially in the third wave, have decompressed as well. Now, that doesn't mean that we want to get a whole bunch of new COVID cases. It just means that if we do see surges at some point, at least we can deal with it much better. I know that hospitalizations are a lagging marker. So let's say if cases go up hospitalizations are delayed from that. But overall, what we're seeing in the GTA is that where we were hit very hard before, the hospitals are seeing minimal amounts of COVID. Rather than previous, it was a tsunami. It's more of a slow drip that we're able to very easily deal with.
6: Our first COVID case was March 26, 2020. And
2: today we are COVID free.
1: Marking a milestone in the pandemic fight,
4: a Toronto hospital celebrates its medical surgical ICU being COVID free.
3: Doesn't mean it can't change. I don't want to say that we're out of this yet. But the point is that we are in a much better position right now, hospital wise, than we were a year ago.
2: Hmm. And what do we know about who is getting admitted to hospital with with COVID-19 right now?
3: What we're seeing uh, a lot is people who are unvaccinated. Now, if you look at the overall case count in Ontario, there are a lot of people who are vaccinated fully getting COVID. But based on what we're seeing in the hospital, those must be very mild cases because the majority of people who are sick enough to get hospitalized, especially in the ICU, the vast majority of those, you know, upwards of uh, in the high 90s in terms of percent are uh, individuals who have not yet been vaccinated. Um, people who have been vaccinated fully, we've seen the occasional person, uh, but by and large, these are individuals who are elderly or have significant immune suppression, such as, uh, being, uh, on chemotherapy for a mm. uh, blood cancer.
2: Mm and and when we're thinking about those who are you know immunocompromised or the or elderly i mean we also know that there are new treatments for people who get covid to to hopefully prevent hospital stays or deaths are those promising at all
3: Definitely. Now, uh, they're still in their infancy. So one of the biggest Mm. things we're using right now, my colleague, Dr. Zane Chagla in Hamilton, has been spearheading it here in Ontario, is monoclonal antibodies. Uh, I know we don't talk about Trump very often, but uh, it's actually what Trump was given when he was exposed back in Mm. whenever it was.
0: But I spent four days there and I went in, I wasn't feeling so hot. And within a very short period of time, they gave me Regeneron. It's called Regeneron. And it was like unbelievable. Uh, this is a, an
3: antibody anything. that's given know. to people who are at risk of severe disease. So, for example, mm-hmm. a uh, person over the age of sixty-five, person with diabetes, etc. And these can be given soon after exposure, or when you first develop symptoms. And let's say the first couple of days. And there's an infusion clinic that's running that can help to prevent that person from going on to severe disease. Uh, so that's uh, a promising. We do have some oral antivirals that are coming down the pipe. Uh, they were just, uh, I believe, in England
7: or the UK, the first country in the world to approve Merck's antiviral pill. It's a drug called Monupiravir, Molnupiravir, and it is the first oral antiviral treatment. So the first pill for the illness to get the green light anywhere.
3: But these certainly allow an oral option for early treatment of people who are not yet all that sick, but are in the community and are at risk of getting sick.
2: And I want to talk a little bit about case counts. I mean, I know in BC here, just like other provinces across Canada, it felt like for so long, you know, daily provincial case numbers were what we all kept our eyes on. It's what we used to frame our understanding about where things were at and to a degree how, you know, we use those numbers to sort of predict how we should behave but, but do you think that should still be the case or should we be thinking of these case counts differently now?
3: I think we should be. And I agree. I'm I'm uh, one of those people myself that every day at around 10 o'clock, you look for what the case count is. But you're right. As time has gone on, this case count, while it still has its use, it is becoming less illustrative. I think before people were using that as almost a surrogate risk of how risky, how much at risk am I of COVID? And maybe that was the case in, let's say, first and second wave, but it certainly isn't the case now just because case counts are going up does not necessarily mean that we're headed right back for lockdown i personally think that the information needs to be available but the kind of uh, publishing of this in a you know a, a news format every single day is not as helpful as kind of looking at the overall picture of what's happening look at the vaccination level uh you know uh Acknowledging the fact that we are having significant uh, impact, positive impacts seen by the vaccines, while we might need restrictions at some point, it's not the go-to anymore. And I think that what people are seeing is when the case counts go up, you start to see those discussions, those arguments of why are we open too soon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think by taking that out of the picture and looking at a, a, a world where we live with COVID and we're mitigating the risks is going to be a bit more uh, productive for the population.
1: Ninety-three point one CFIS FM. That is the first segment of your Friday morning front burner from CBC News. Part two coming up in a moment here on After Nine.
8: There isn't much that a country singer hasn't covered in a song. If you want to hear songs about new love, lost love, drinking, fighting, cowboys, trains, traveling, and everything else, then tune into the Country Cavalcade every Wednesday 6 to 8, where I cover music from the 20s to the 90s, as well as today's traditional independent artists. You'll hear from such greats as the Carter family, Johnny Horton, Vern Charlton, and so much more. The Country Cavalcade, Wednesday 6 to 8, only here on 93.1 CFIS-FM with me, Corey
1: Walker. Caregivers with strollers and travelers using mobile devices will be happy to learn of the 24 new accessibility ramps across five sidewalk projects completed this year in Prince George. Sidewalk improvements were finished on Kelly Road, 20th Avenue, Simon Fraser Avenue, Ospica Boulevard, and DeMano Boulevard. A map of all road and sidewalk rehabilitation projects completed this year is available through the news link at princegeorge.ca. More information on city infrastructure work is available at princegeorge.ca infrastructure.
2: In the spirit of their current exhibition, Reflections, a meditation on 35 years of collecting, Two Rivers Gallery invites you to be the curator. Arrange artworks on a magnetic wall and learn more about their permanent collection in this interactive activity. Share a photo of your finished display using the hashtag Gallery and tagging at Two Rivers Gallery on Instagram and Facebook. It's your very own DIY Gallery, a fun and engaging activity from Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza.
4: Forecast from Environment Canada, a mix of sun and cloud today. Wind from the south at 30, gusting to 50 this morning, switching to southwest 30, gusting to 50 this afternoon, a high of 8. Mainly cloudy tonight, with more gusting southwest winds and a low of 0. For Saturday, sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud in the afternoon, gusting southwest winds continuing and a high of 3. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: And here is the second part of your Friday morning front burner from CBC News.
2: I I want to talk about the possibility of of COVID-19 maybe transitioning from pandemic to to endemic. Uh, But first of all, can you just define these terms for us, pandemic and endemic?
3: Absolutely. There is an epidemiologic definition of both, but to put it into plain language, uh, a pandemic is when you have uh, like a a, a raging wildfire type infection that is in multiple large regions, generally multiple countries. But in this case, it's the whole world. So you have an outbreak, an epidemic that is growing in multiple countries. So that's a a pandemic. Mm. Endemic is kind of the other end of the spectrum where you basically have a slow burning uh, stable transmission that you can occasionally have spikes, but in general, it's a background, it's background noise that you live with. You have a certain number of illnesses at a time. It might be worse in the wintertime, for example, like influenza, mm. but for the most part, you're not seeing this massive explosion of cases all the time. And endemic happens when you have kind of a balance between infection and population immunity. It's not a static thing. It changes with time, but it's still overall, uh, uh, a low type of transmission as opposed to this high that we're seeing around the world with COVID, uh, and especially in, in the first uh, year of it.
2: Hmm. Do you see signs of COVID becoming endemic in the Toronto area?
3: I do think so. Now, again, I don't want to upset my epidemiologic colleagues. I want to say that I think there are some early signs that we might be at. Uh, into that phase, oftentimes this is something that you have to look at the trend over time and you're often doing it retrospectively. So, uh, you know, what we saw in the fourth wave where you saw this kind of cases rise and then it blunted, I do think that is potential evidence that, yeah, we we have a significant amount of immunity in this area that's allowing this to, uh, uh, you know,
0: to blunt this spike. Based on our analysis of other jurisdictions around the world with similar rates of vaccination, we believed that we could prudently move away from addressing COVID as a pandemic and towards an endemic. It is now clear that we were wrong. And for that, time will tell, but I do think that moving into 2022,
3: we are going to see more and more places have this pattern um, as immunity accrues. Uh, Ironically, with Delta, yes, it spreads a lot more effectively than the other variants did. It in a way immunizes, quote unquote, people who are uh, not that are still susceptible. And that can also uh, help to uh, accumulate immunity in the community.
2: Mm. But not all viruses settle into this kind of forever zone, right? Like the, the SARS virus from 2003 is considered extinct. Is there hope that this could happen here?
3: You know, I doubt it. I would think that for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, I think that would be highly unlikely. So SARS-CoV-1 or or SARS-1, it had characteristics that made it so that uh, it uh, uh, wasn't able to propagate for a long time. And uh, one of the biggest things was, is that you were the most infectious with SARS-1 at the time around seven or eight days uh, when you were very, very sick. So it was easy to identify those patients and isolate them and break the transmission chains. With SARS-CoV-2, uh, you're, especially if you're unvaccinated, you're contagious, you know, a couple of days before you even have symptoms. So there's really no way to uh, reliably uh, stop it in that sense. So this is something that I think is going to be with us forever. That does not mean it's going to be like this. It is going to be something in the respiratory virus milieu that we'll have to identify. And hopefully uh, with vaccination, it'll be in good control and with therapeutics that are on the horizon.
2: And a time when we heard about this idea of COVID-19 becoming endemic was, you know, not not so long ago. While COVID-19 cases may rise in the coming weeks and months, a surge of hospitalizations and other severe outcomes is much less likely thanks to vaccines. That That was when Dr. Dina Hinshaw in Alberta said it was time for the province to learn how to live normally with the virus. And she stripped the province of a number of public health measures, including financial support for isolation. And not too long after her announcement, we started to see these huge spikes in cases, hospital visits and ICU stays. Are you concerned about the consequences of calling something endemic too soon?
3: Yeah. So to be fair, Dr. Hinshaw, Dr. Hinshaw, I think, was placed in a bit of a position herself. And she really, really, uh, you know, I I read that article that she wrote and she really, really uh, had some good thought to a what we call a wicked problem. Uh, But that was because there was a significant uh, desire for the province to move forward. The answer to that question is absolutely yes. We certainly don't want to uh, declare something endemic and then completely drop everything and see what happened in Alberta. That said, uh, again, I can speak the best for Ontario. The situation is different here, but uh, you know what we're seeing in the GTA with more blunted spread is certainly not the case in other places in Ontario, as uh, we're seeing at press time with um, with Sudbury, Haldimand, Lambton County, and many other places. So I do still think that it's going to be some time before we're in that kind of stable endemic place across the province and across Canada. But I will say we are getting close to there as. Delta is really good at seeking out people who are susceptible uh, and infecting them and in the process giving them immunity.
2: Dr. Chakrabarty, thank you so much for your time today.
3: It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Before we let you go today, Stalo poet, author, and professor Lee Markle has died. Maracle lit a path for Indigenous artists with books like Ravensong and I Am Woman. She was fearless and courageous in her push to see Indigenous people of all walks of life humanized at times when racism was at its height. She schooled many of us, including me, to be more compassionate in the world. And that's all for this week. FrontBurner is brought to you by CBC News and CBC Podcasts. The show was produced this week by Simi Bassey, Imogen Burchard, Ali Janes, Joytha Simgupta, Katie Toth, and Derek Vanderwijk. Our intern is Akanksha Dingra. Our sound design was by Brittany Amadeo, Mackenzie Cameron, and Julia Whitman. Our music is by Joseph Shabison of Boombox Sound. The executive producer of Frontburner is Nick McCabe Locus. I'm Angela Starrett, in for Jamie Poisson. I'll be back with you again next week. Thanks for listening.
1: That is FrontBurner from CBC News. You can also catch FrontBurner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcast. This is 93.1 CFIS FM. When we return in a moment, we will have the Friday panel with your guest host this morning, Trudy Clausen.
4: Wondering what to do with the kids on Pro-D Days this
1: fall? Theatre Northwest is offering a series of full-day sewing camps with a different theme each month. The final camp of the series on November 26th has a gift ideas theme, making gift bags, napkins, and scrunchies. Registration is $50 for each camp, which includes
4: a snack. The camps run from 8.30 to 3.30 at Theatre Northwest in the Park Hill Center. To register for the Theatre Northwest Pro-D Day Sewing Camps, visit
1: tickets.theatrenorthwest.com. The Canadian Red Cross is in need of Emergency Management and Health Equipment Loan Volunteers for Prince George. Full training is provided. For more information or to volunteer, call 1-800-565-8000, visit redcross.ca slash volunteer, or email volunteerbcy at redcross.ca. That's Emergency Management and Health Equipment Loan Volunteers for Prince George. Get involved today with the Canadian Red Cross, and you can help out when help is most needed. You said it. Out to make a difference in the world, but how do you increase your leadership
4: capacity and organizational impact? Using their award-winning non-directive coach training, Essential Impact helps not-for-profit leaders elevate effectiveness and develop successful organizational strategies that drive results. Whether you want to level up your leadership, implement an organization-wide coaching culture, or own your full certified leadership coach designation, Essential Impact can help. Find out more at EssentialImpact.com.
1: Career paths are rarely linear. Not-for-profit leaders have career choices that lead to unexpected opportunities. Learn how to intentionally manage your career to foster your professional success with Vantage Point Strategic Career Management. This three-hour workshop provides clarity on marketable skills, developing next steps, and learning actions to proactively manage your career. Registration and full details are available through the vantagepoint.ca. Strategic Career Management, Thursday, December 2nd from 1 to 4 through the vantagepoint.ca.
0: You're listening to After Nine on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS FM.
6: Good morning. This is Trudy Clausen on After 9. We've got the Friday panel organized here with Eric Allen, Herb Martin, uh, Peter Ewart, and Art Betke. So I actually want to just acknowledge, I mean, yesterday we had Remembrance Day, and uh, across the country various kinds of ceremonies were held. Um, However, in Ottawa, we had something rather rather unusual happen. So (laughs) we had both the Prime Minister being late, um, and then we also had the Governor-General... Uh, coming in the middle of the moment of silence and actually interrupting that. So I want to just spend our first uh, a few minutes here just talking about that and how could that happen? Eric, do you want to go?
9: <laughs> well, considering this is the first I heard of it, I didn't hear about that at all.
6: Yeah, uh, yeah I was in the news yesterday. Yeah. Yeah,
9: I don't know what. Uh, well, certainly the moment of silence. He shouldn't have interrupted that. The governor general. I don't know why Tudor would I them. Mean, one would hope that there was a good reason for it, but anyway, for I'll let somebody else talk and know okay. what's going on
6: yeah well i I mean, and the reason I wanted to talk about this was also in the news was the fact that at one uh, informal Remembrance Day ceremony, there was a an anti vaccine mandate person that took the mic, and I just thought, my goodness, we've all become rude from the very lowest uh, I mean, (laughs) I'm from, you know, the the people who aren't elected all the way up to, like, our top uh, government official there in in the Governor General. So, um, Herb, what have you got to say about that?
8: Well, from what I understand, the um, the Governor General has to wait for the Prime Minister to to go before she goes. So... um uh, there might there's there's a reason I guess for why she was late why he was late We I, I haven't heard any explanation and as Eric said hopefully there's a, there
5: was a good one
6: yeah how about you Peter
5: uh, I would say I would say similar things right you know but, uh of course when a uh, ceremony like this is taking place you know you have to you know cross your eyes and or cross your T's and dot your eyes <laughs> in terms of uh, how, how things work right and uh You know, so, yeah, uh, that's not good for sure.
6: No, it does make us look rather sloppy. Uh, Art, had you seen that, and what did you think?
5: Yeah,
10: I saw it. Uh, I thought that just uh, displayed how insincere they both are about the whole situation. Uh, He just barely made it there and didn't get there in time to assume his proper position, Uh, but at least he was there. Uh, She came quite late. She was not waiting for him. Uh, that two minutes of silence was well into the ceremony, and uh, yeah, there's no excuse for that. I mean, how busy is she that she can't get there in time?
6: Well, I think I think the sort of just the most odd, and and I would say as a Canadian, the most embarrassing part was the that the moment of silence was actually interrupted to announce her presence and I just thought oh my goodness <laughs> if she was going to miss that moment she should have just uh, they should have just waited um, and, uh, and I'm not like that part I you know we probably can't blame her because she was probably not in charge of that but uh, interrupting the moment of silence just seems uh, like just crazy so anyway uh, but we do thank our, our soldiers and members of the military for for everything that they do and continue to do so I just wanted to it was just rather sad to see to see Remembrance Day tarred, tarred by that. Um, okay, so we'll move on to we we have uh, in in Glasgow, Scotland. There's a major conference, COP26, and I kept wondering over the last few weeks what the heck is that organization anyway? Um, it's not Paris. It's not. Uh, it's not the uh, United Nations climate change thing, and, but also I'm going to read the thing. Uh, COP stands for Conference of the Parties, and they're signatories to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, and there are 197 parties, so that's 196 countries plus the UK, and they bring, they try to bring together all the people of the like all the signatories to paris and the un change and talk about how to actually implement that so i mean it sounds very high level it sounds very um very um uh you know elite kind of stuff but uh, art do you want to start us off on that what are what are your thoughts on that and and i'm particularly like if you can talk about how that impacts us locally here in prince george if you want to go there
10: well, impacts us locally will depend on just what measures Justin Trudeau takes, which I think will be damaging. Uh, but I think we can safely assume that there won't be any more of these conferences. No COP 27. This will be the last one because they all said this is our last chance. So <laughs> if if they do save the planet, there's no need for another one. And if they don't, there's no point because it's too late. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, now, this is just uh, the rich and the powerful. I mean, what does Leo DiCaprio have to do with it? Yeah, but lots of the rich and powerful and puffed-up virtue signalers gathering in Glasgow to pontificate to the rest of us of how much we are harming the planet. They, they've showed up there, some of them, in more than 400 private jets to bemoan the scourge of air industry emissions from the rest of us. They tucked into five-star meals in between, wondering out loud if we, the little people, should eat less meat. They rested their weary, virtuous heads on plump silk pillows after long (laughs) days of discussing how to rein in the material aspirations of the unwashed masses. It's a rather nauseating display. And you know what? No country outdoes Canada for virtuous self-importance. Britain, uh, they had the home field advantage, and they only had the second largest number of delegates of 233. Who was first, you ask? That would be us. We had 227, including the dear leader's personal videographer, personal photographer, and speech writer, and 17 members of his media team. He's got to get the message of his wondrous perfection out there, of course.
6: (laughs) You sound poetic this morning, Art.
10: Oh, yeah. I prepared this.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. How about uh, Peter? Do you want to go after Art?
5: (laughs) I'm sure. um Sure. yeah, well, my take on things is that yes, we are facing a climate emergency, and it's a very serious one. But this COP 26, you know, the whole mechanism itself, you know, there's real serious problems with it. Like I think actually that uh, there should be more decision making at the uh, at the country and local level rather than you know some you know meeting of uh, these high level, a lot of them are establishment people uh there's uh big bankers there and there's um big oil companies there and and so on but at the same time there's other people there especially out in the streets right who are who are there you know i think for with good reason about the uh, climate emergency we're facing but um you know just some things here you know like my my concern about these things is that uh you know things like cop cop 26 um you know like there's a lot of uh as they say a lot of hot air that is blown right uh but uh, very little progress in terms of addressing the climate crisis. And uh, what what you get out of it, a lot of it, is that um, there's a lot of lobbying there, big business lobbying. You know, like here's a quote from uh, in the Vancouver Sun from Mark Carney, who's playing a big role in terms of the finance sector, mobilizing the global finance sector to get involved with the uh, the whole climate issue. But his take on it is he's talking about the transition to uh, away from oil and gas. And here's the quote. This could turn an existential threat into the greatest commercial opportunity of our lifetime. You know, so, you know, what, what they're talking about there, like the big business, globalist big business and all this is, is ways to make money out of this whole thing. And so I think that there's a serious problem there with the whole mechanism itself. I believe that there, we should have mechanisms that involve the ordinary people, uh, whether they're in communities or provinces or countries or whatever, and uh, develop uh, and put forth uh, uh, plans and ideas that uh, can seriously address the, uh, that's, uh, the,
1: the climate crisis.
6: That's a very interesting take there, Peter. We'll be back after a short break and we'll
1: continue. November is Financial Literacy Month, an initiative launched by numerous community groups, not-for-profits, and government bodies to help improve Canada's financial literacy levels. One way to be financially resilient is to have the appropriate financial literacy skills to navigate any financial situation. ABC Life Literacy Canada is proud to offer a number of free financial literacy resources from its Money Matters Financial Literacy Program. To access these free Money Matters Financial Literacy resources, visit ABC. The Grizzly Bear Foundation is continuing their fight to give orphaned cubs a second chance at life in the wild. Now is the perfect time
4: to show your support. Donations through the end of the month will be matched with 100% of money raised going directly to help get orphaned grizzly cubs back to the wild. To make a donation, search for Project Rewild at canadahelps.org. For full details on Project Rewild, visit grizzlybearfoundation.com.
6: Standing up against racism is an ongoing battle. How will you help? I will employ an intersectional anti-racist lens to support the racialized community as they exercise their human rights. I will refuse to be silenced. And I will help others raise their voices against hate. I will listen, learn, speak up, and take action. This message is brought to you by the Canadian Anti-Racism Youth Coalition. Visit CARYC.ca for more information about how you can stand up and speak out.
4: Forecast from Environment Canada, a mix of sun and cloud today, wind from the south at 30 gusting to 50 this morning, switching to southwest 30 gusting to 50 this afternoon, a high of 8. Mainly cloudy tonight with more gusting southwest winds and a low of 0. For Saturday, sunny becoming a mix of sun and cloud in the afternoon, gusting southwest winds continuing and a high of 3. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around
0: Prince George. This is after nine on ninety three point one CFIS FM.
6: All right, this is Trudy Clausen hosting guest hosting today, and um, we're talking about Glasgow Conference COP twenty six. And uh, Peter was just talking about how we should have more of these things discussed more in within country, within like more local, instead of just these highfalutin, high level talks. What do you think, Herb? Uh,
8: I think um, these these, uh, these conferences are useful. Um, if you look at the uh, surprise announcement between uh, China and uh, the U.S., who uh, between them account for forty percent of uh, global emissions, um, that um, that came out of this conference, and that was um, probably out of public pressure to um, to provide something um, some way forward, and. Um, Uh, And I think it does. I mean, the details are just are just starting to be fleshed out. But um, if both China and the U.S. uh, take responsibility for decreasing global emissions in the future, that's um, we're we're far far ahead of where we were under Donald Trump, who um, completely backed out of the U.S. commitments um, in Paris. So there's there's some grounds for optimism. Of course, there's always pomp and pageantry at these things, and. You know, it's easy to point a finger at the excess. But um, I think most people uh, in this planet have agreed that um, there's something um, that we have to work on. Um, You know, there's uh, locally, um, if you look at it, um, uh, I think there's a poll in Canada that says 51% of conservatives don't believe in climate change. So, uh, you know, working at the local level is... uh, can be problematic in places like Prince George and Alberta and Saskatchewan, where predominantly people vote conservative. Uh, not much would change. Yes, but so so. Sorry, go ahead.
6: Yeah, then I'll ask though. But in the middle of what was it last year? There was a propane shortage in Ontario or Quebec, and like, how do you deal with that?
8: Well, a propane shortage is uh, that, that was, I think that was due to the um, problems in um, uh, with, uh, Indian. Um, demonstrators blocking tracks. I think that was part of the problem. So that's that's sort of an incidental thing. It doesn't really, um, you know, figure into the global problem of uh, greenhouse gases. Um, that was a one-off, and um, I don't think there's any shortage, you know, today, for instance. So, um, you know, I, I think, uh, yeah, all in all, it, w- it was a good thing, and uh, we should have more than them. And uh, and, and, and I, I sort of disagree with Peter that... Um, you know the uh talking about um, uh, making ways uh, or finding ways to make money out of, out of a problem is not a it's not a it, it, that's not an inherent problem um it's it's a it's a it's a it's a good uh, feature of uh, of capitalism and um if you can produce uh, uh electricity out of renewable energy for half the price of, than a than a coal fired plant can and we should be looking at it and we should be looking at it worldwide india still plans on building 27 coal plants china is planning on building 280 or at least that was the case a couple of weeks ago so um, you know if we can if if there's a canadian company that can go overseas and build a a power plant uh, based on renewable energy for half the price then uh, you know we should be at it
6: Okay, so Eric, you have the advantage. You've heard uh, your other panelists talk about their different uh, opinions and views. What do you think?
9: Well, I I just ran across this poll the other day that said 49% of conservatives uh, agree with climate change. That's rather interesting. That just shows you how you can put information out there. I say 49% agree with it. Herb says 51% disagree with it.
7: <laughs> <laughs>
9: you know, it all depends on, on, on who puts the message out and what the intent of the message is. The climate change situation we're in now is, is a big, big, big problem, and we don't have any big, big, big leaders with big brains to solve the problem. So we're in trouble, and we can talk about all the guys on the top end and everything that they're doing, yada, 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 and that's true. But I mentioned before, you know, I go down to coffee, and there's five of us sitting there drinking coffee down at the mall, and we all drove there in our cars for a cup of coffee, and then we drive home. We're really worried about uh, climate change, you know. Now, that's on a very small scale, but basically that's what happens. Everybody's waiting for somebody else to do something. And it's not happening. It's, it's like locusts, you know. Locusts come through and eat everything in its way until they run out of food to eat, and then they die off. And we're the world's locusts. Everything gets in our road, we knock it down, tear it up, eat it, throw it back out. And we've got nothing but devastation behind us. We have to stop that. You know, and we really have to get serious about it. And, uh, you know, as we're talking about Glasgow. Thirty-six or twenty-six, whatever it is, we're building a a LNG plant in Kitimat. We're going to put in uh, possibly a second one. We're talking about putting in a a, uh, petrochemical plant down in BCR Industrial Park. And there's other things going, some industry going out uh, north of town that are coming in. So. Uh, You know, if we looked at everything just Prince George is doing that's going to contribute, and Kitimat in the northwest D.C., actually, uh, to contribute to reducing greenhouse gases, it ain't going to happen because we're just doing the opposite. We're talking about reducing it, but we're actually increasing it.
6: Okay, so uh, maybe I'll go with um, Peter here just to finish off um, before we go to break. Uh, What do you think of what you've
5: heard? Uh, well, you know, just on the question of like what Mark Carney is talking about, the commercial opportunity of our lifetime, like, just to give you an example, like the federal government just recently announced that it's going to be giving upwards of $800 million to the global uh, steel company, ArcelorMittal Stelco. You know, so they're handing over the, the hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's my concern about what's going on at this top level, at a, on the global level, there is that the the big global companies and the big global banks and all this are, are seeing this as an opportunity to get all kinds of public money. Like uh, they're, they're talking now about removing the subsidies on uh, for oil and gas, but they're going to move it over into uh, other uh, sectors of the economy uh, that benefit uh, the, the biggest bankers, the biggest uh, global companies. And um, so I think that that's part of the problem of of the decisions being in the hands of these of those people rather than in the hands of in a more democratic way in the hands of the like why not have discussion at the local level and at the community level and the provincial level about you know what what's a way forward and um having that discussion at the at that level there uh will create um uh decisions and, uh, and, ideas and ideas and all this that will have um, uh, support from the population, right? So I, I believe we have to, there's, there's other ways that we have to do things. But the COP26 way uh, okay. is a lot, lot of hot air.
6: All right. Okay, well, it's time for a break. So we'll be back and we'll wrap up our piece on uh, COP26 when we come back.
4: Theatre Northwest will be taking to the stage for the 2021-22 season with a musical about a group taking to the stage. The Marvelous Wonder Rats is a jukebox musical featuring songs from the 50s and 60s and includes two local actors, Shelby Meany and Maggie Trepanier. It's a light, fun way to get the new season underway. The Marvelous Wonder Rats is on stage at Theatre Northwest in the Park Hill Center from November 18th to December 8th, health orders permitting. Tickets for the Marvelous Wonder Rats are on sale now through theatrenorthwest.com.
0: The United Way of Northern BC is continuing their barbecue fundraisers and need your help. The fundraisers take place on a Thursday, Friday, and Saturday once a month. United Way needs volunteers for morning and or afternoon shifts to keep the barbecues a reality. On each shift, volunteers will be working with a United Way staff person. For more information, email Michelle B at UnitedWayNBC.ca. United Way of Northern BC. Together, we can do great things.
1: The Canada Revenue Agency is pleased to host regular webinars on important issues for Canadians. Check out informative presentations on seniors' benefits and credits, benefits and credits for persons with disabilities and their caregivers, and the scam awareness webinar, Be Scam Smart. Webinars are offered monthly with registration available online through the Canada Revenue Agency website. Access the list of upcoming webinars along with the registration links through the links page at cfisfm.ca.
9: Shift, a program of Advocates Pregnancy Care Services, continues to be the fastest-growing absence-based presentation of its kind in B.C., SHIFT is active in 25 public schools across seven school districts. To date, they've given 570 presentations to over 15,000 B.C. students. The presentations are carefully researched, scientifically accurate, and given by experienced presenters, with rave reviews from teachers and students. For more information on SHIFT, email shift at hopeforwomen.ca.
0: It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
6: All right, we're back for the last segment of our uh, after nine political panel. So I think I'll go with um, Eric. Will, um first, and just my my sort of question is, how do we manage that with having um, sort of the elite sitting together there and deciding everything? You know, that's going to sort of trickle down to us, I guess. Um, because and one thing, like I'm I'm a monarchist, but. I was a little bit astonished to see that the Queen herself, who was a major part of this uh, conference, even though she herself didn't appear, but um, that, like, in, I think, the summertime, it was revealed that the Queen's properties had all been excluded from Scotland's um, renewable pipeline development program uh, that was put in place in order to reduce uh, carbon emissions. And and the Queen got got out of that. Um, I mean, how do we deal with that? Uh, We, the little people...
9: Yeah, certainly it's a problem because you know it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, we've got big corporations, everything driving uh, industry and producing products and everything that we consume, and uh, you know the in, in, you know the idea out there is that we need all this stuff, but when in actual fact. 50% of stuff is produced usually ends up in a waste pile somewhere. <laughs> and so it's driven by greed and profits more than anything. So lately I've been thinking that somebody, whoever this person might be, your <laughs> persons, have to go back and look at that, uh, how companies are structured, you know, the uh, private company and the uh, publicly traded company, how they're structured, how they're taxed, and look at some really hard line uh, taxation or penalties for polluting. And um, it just has to be done. And and they can't, uh, you know, you can't give them uh, wiggle room to get out of it. And now some of that cost is going to come down to to the consumer, and we're going to have to pay it if we're serious about doing something. But if we want to do it, so we have to get started and say, you know, I mean, we all know that the companies, the big companies and the big uh, coal mines and all that, uh, they're doing the polluting, so that's where we got to stop it.
6: Okay, um, so I'll go with, um, Art, I'll go with you next. I'm just gonna, one thing that is sort of local is Imperial Metals, when their tailings pond, um, collapsed and the subsequent investigation, I think it revealed that the, the reason that it, the dam collapsed was because they had, um, uh, not wanted to release water to, because then that would give, give them some sort of black eye on the environmentalist, um, uh, uh, scale, scale, and so they they didn't want to release water, and then the result was an even worse catastrophe. Um, in because they wanted to, so I mean here they you know they were looking really good um, on the environmental you know checklist, and then all of a sudden the dam breaks. <laughs> so I mean, how do you deal with with that?
7: Well,
10: there's a lot of pressure from environmental organizations that. Uh, are affecting decisions and making things worse um i mean this whole cop 26 i mean the purpose of meetings like that is just basically they're sending us a message and you know the 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 um they're self-righteous hypocrites uh, and the messages they 're sending it is not that j- just that we, the unwashed masses, must reduce our lifestyle to misery levels and it 's not that they are more moral and virtuous than us than us it's their primary message is that their rules that apply to us don't apply to them that 's why the queen gets away with. What she's doing, well, the rich peoples have huge, massive uh, carbon footprints, and uh, they tell us we're not allowed to. They are the deserving elite, and we are their undeserving serfs. So anytime you get that kind of situation, I mean, what crisis? I mean, when a dam breaks, that's actual damage. Where's the crisis? Forty years we've been telling, we've been told that uh, it's the last chance and it's going to be too late. For another forty years, they'll be saying the same thing. Meanwhile, things just keep getting better. You check out the evidence, um, and and you know the people will only take so much. Uh, dam breaking, doing real damage—that's one thing. And a survey of Canada shows most of the people, majority of the people, support the idea of getting rid of fossils. Uh, Apparently they don't realize that without fossil fuels, we'd almost be back in the Stone Age. But there's also another survey, an international survey, that says although while citizens uh, are alarmed by the climate crisis, supposed crisis, most believe that they're already doing more to preserve the planet than anyone else, including their governments, and few, if any, are willing to make any significant lifestyle changes.
6: <laughs> okay, so so Herb, what are your thoughts on that?
8: Uh, well, um, look, you know, there's, there's going to be a transition from fossil fuels to renewables. It's, it's coming. Uh, the way we per- pursue that uh, change is going to be um, instrumental in how our future economy and our future wealth um, uh, is impacted. So, you know, one thing I, I can think of is that there's got to be some sort of uh, mixed transition where maybe um, cities like Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver uh, go to electric cars exclusively. Um, and, uh, you know, pe- people in places like Prince George, uh, Edmonton, Fort McMurray, you know, are, are maybe exempted to, uh, or. There's got to be some sort of mixed uh, transition, I think, and um, but uh, in that way, maybe that uh, uh, we can both reap the rewards of um, uh, of a new economy and um, not totally bankrupt the, um, the places where the old economy uh, will has to persist for uh, for many decades to come.
6: All right. Okay. So we've got about a minute left. Um, I'll give each of you, you know, 10 seconds, I think, (laughs) to sort of wrap up. What are your final thoughts on this topic for today? Uh, Let's begin with Eric. Uh,
9: Well, we just have to get more information and get a little more uh, aggressive when we're
5: dealing with our government leaders to do something besides talk.
6: Okay. Peter?
5: Uh, Well, we're dealing with an environmental issue, but it's also a democratic issue. I think that's really important that the two get linked and that we uh, look at solving the problems that way.
6: All right, Herb?
8: Uh, Yeah, you know, like these these conferences are important. Uh, There's Sure, there's lots of hypocrisy and pomp and everything, but um, uh, at least we're talking about it, and that's
6: the first step. All right, and Art, you've got 10 seconds.
10: Electric cars used by the delegates were charged by diesel generators because the wind farms weren't working. You are not going to go to renewables.
6: All right. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for everyone for tuning in and listening to our Friday political panel. After nine, we'll talk to you next week.
0: After Nine is a daily presentation of CFISFM. After Nine is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at CFISFM.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email CFISFM at yahoo.ca.
3: This is Community Radio 93.1 CFISFM Prince George proudly supported by local businesses like books and